Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. John 19. Where today, at last, we get to the moment that everything has been building up to Um, not just in John's gospel, but really this is the center of the unfolding drama of the story of redemption in the Bible. It's the cross. One of the reasons why what we're about to read doesn't move us like it should is, for one thing, we've read it so many times, and it's become very familiar to us. It's become very casual uh, to us. And we've we've allowed the cross to become common. Uh, People tattoo crosses on their bodies. Uh, We have crosses dangling from our necks or displayed on our t-shirts. They're they're, uh, uh, decorations in our church. In fact, we've got one right here uh, behind us. But if the cross, if the cross just becomes a piece of uh, pretty decor with vague religious symbolism, then we're becoming too detached from the cross and the fullness of what it means. It's not wrong to have cross decor in your churches. It's not wrong if you're wearing cross jewelry this morning. It's not wrong, but it is strange because the cross was an instrument of torture. The cross was the most feared and cruel means of capital punishment in the Roman Empire. Nobody back then thought a cross was something beautiful. A cross was horrifying. If you were in the first century and you were walking around the marketplace with a cross necklace, the reaction of people then would be like our reaction today. If we saw somebody walking around with a little golden electric chair dangling from their neck, we'd be thinking, why in the world would you do that? That's an instrument of death, and it is. The cross is an instrument of death, but we also need to remember that the cross is the sign of the glory of the cosmos. And so this morning, as we focus on the cross, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would take something that has become common in our thinking and would grip us afresh with its fullness, uh, the fullness of its meaning, and that we would be changed by the meaning of the cross as we consider both the horror of the cross and the glory of the cross. So, now, let's stand together one more time and let's read about the cross. We stand at Harbin's Church out of honor and reverence for the reading of God's Word, John chapter 19 And we're going to start in verse 16. The Apostle John writes this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, 
but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each uh, soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to seize whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, if we don't get what is happening here in this moment, in this scripture, we're, we're missing everything. Father, I pray that you would help me. I pray that you'd give me strength as I, as I preach through this passage, Father. I pray, Holy Spirit, that, that you would enable me, empower me to speak with clarity, to rightly divide this word Father, I pray for the listeners here this morning as they hear the word preached, that you would give them listening ears, that they would receive and hear and believe and hope in the message that the Spirit has to say to Harbin's church through this word this morning. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the cross, there are appalling horrors, but in our text today those horrors will give way to and magnify and put on spectacular display glory. Unlike ordinary crucifixions, the great horror of the cross is going to give way to a greater glory. And so the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that in the cross, Jesus is treated as a criminal. Look at verse 16. It says, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. John's original readers in the first century would have immediately understood the weight of that statement. It was the worst punishment for the worst criminals and the lowliest of slaves in society. First, the condemned man would be viciously beaten with a, with a whip with leather thongs fitted with pieces of bone or lead, or glass, and they're just they're whipping that into the, into the flesh of the other person. And the beatings were so savage, with so much flesh ripped away, sometimes even the vital organs of the person is being exposed in that moment. And sometimes the person wouldn't even make it to crucifixion. They die because of the scourging. But if they survive that, it got worse. After being nailed to a cross by his hands and feet, the bloodied and battered and bruised man, he would hang there. 
sometimes for days in the hot sun and in the frigid night in constant agony. And to breathe, he would need to push up with his legs and and pull with his arms to keep that, that chest cavity open so he could take in that oxygen. And this activity, this constant activity, would eventually lead to terrible muscle spasms just racking the whole body. But, but if you gave up on that, if you sag down and you try to rest and you stop pushing, that leads to asphyxiation. So the condemned man would have to keep fighting and have to keep pushing just to get the next breaths. And we're told in verse 18 that there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Here Jesus is crucified between two criminals. Here Jesus is, as Isaiah 53 predicted, numbered with the transgressors, treated like a criminal, regarded as a lawbreaker. Now, we talk about how Jesus died for our sins. We do it all the time. But sometimes we talk about it glibly. And when we have forgotten the horror of the cross and what it really meant we forget that one of the greatest messages of the cross is the seriousness, the heinousness of your sin and my sin. The cross should be shocking to us because it is a means of capital punishment. It's a means of execution. And when you think about people who deserve capital punishment, what kind of people come to your mind? Who do you think of? The worst of the worst. The, the most treacherous of outlaws. And here's the rub. When we casually talk about how Jesus died for sinners, the elephant in the room that sometimes we forget is that if Jesus was executed on behalf of sinners, and if we are sinners, then we deserve execution. Every single one of us, and that is a hard pill to swallow for many people because we don't see the heinousness of our sin. Because sin in our society is winked at, it's laughed at, it's joked about, it's minimized. We watch sitcoms and we laugh at depictions of sin. We dance around to music that celebrates sin. In our own lives, we tend to condemn other people's transgressions, but what do we do with our own? We gloss over our own sin, and we treat it like it's no big deal. But let's remember, friends, Jesus wasn't crucified simply because his enemies hated him. Jesus was crucified because you stretched the truth that one time, and you were not completely honest. Jesus was crucified because of that flash of covetousness that you felt when you jealously craved something that your friend had and and you didn't have it. Jesus was crucified because of that, that internet site that you looked at and you know that you should not have. Jesus was crucified because you yelled at your kids on the way to church this morning. Jesus was crucified for that one time and every other time where you loved and desired something else more than God. The message of the cross is that all of those things are wicked. Paul Washer says that your sin and my sin is like charging into the throne room of God with dagger raised. It's treason. It warrants execution. 
And, and we are told this, right? We're, we're told this from the very beginning of the Bible. God's been honest with humanity from the very start. The day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, God says to Adam and Eve, is the day you will surely die. And later on, the Bible says that the soul that sins shall what? Shall die. And still later on, it says that the wages of sin is death. But the fact that we balk at that is evidence of how sin has corrupted and polluted our thinking. And folks, even Christians can get desensitized to the heinousness of sin. But the cross should shock us back into reality. Because if Jesus had to suffer like this to pay our sin debt and deliver us from the bondage of sin, how horrible and dreadful and weighty your sin and my sin must be. Jesus dies like a criminal, but because he dies as a substitute for us, the message is that we are actually the criminals. Our sin sent him to the cross, not his. But if the sufferings and death of Jesus and the cross tells us something about the enormity of our own sin, the cross also tells us something about an even greater love of God. Let's remember, Jesus isn't a helpless, powerless victim, right? He doesn't have to suffer this kind of treatment. Earlier that night, hours ago, before he was arrested, Jesus spoke two words, I am, and flattened hundreds of Roman soldiers. He could have come off that cross, no problem. But instead, Jesus is hanging there voluntarily because of love. In chapter 3 of this very book, uh, John tells us that it was for love that God gave up his son on the cross. Some of you have sons. Some of you have daughters. Would you give them up to suffer and die so that somebody else might live? More, would you give them up to suffer for a convicted criminal? And don't feel guilty if you say, no way, I I wouldn't do anything like that. Friends, you're not required to give up your sons and daughters. But God gave up his, and not for decent people. He gave up his son for us. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, for while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If the cross should shock us out of our apathy regarding the greatness of our sin, friends, it should shock us even more in regards to the greater love that Christ has for sinners. And so this wonderful, loving, amazing God is treated as a criminal, but proclaimed as a king. Look with me at verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. It was common for the crimes of the guilty criminal to be written down on a placard 
and nailed to the cross for all to see. And what's interesting is the wording on this placard. You'd expect that, that notice to say something like, guilty of sedition against Rome, or guilty of treason against Caesar, or he claimed to be a king. That's, that's what the Jewish leaders want written, right? Don't, don't say king of the Jews. Say, he said I'm the king of the Jews. But Pilate writes nothing on that placard that suggests any wrongdoing on the part of Jesus. Now, it's not that Pilate's growing soft and he's on the verge of becoming a Christian. Instead, what's happening here is that this is mockery. He's mocking Jesus, but more than that, I think, he's mocking the Jews whom Pilate despises. We've seen these, the past couple of weeks and the past couple of sermons how Pilate has been outplayed and outmanipulated by the Jewish leaders, and here is his little moment to get a little revenge, get a little dig. And when the Jewish leaders ask Pilate to change the wording, he digs in his heels. Pilate, who's already given up a mile to the Jews, now won't even give up an inch. And he is determined to humiliate those who have humiliated him. What I've written, I've written. Deal with it. <clears throat> but Pilate's stubborn malice serves God's greater purposes. Because, indeed, Jesus is the king of the Jews. The title Christ is a royal title. He is the descendant of David. The blood that is pouring out of Jesus' body in that moment, collecting as a little pool at the foot of the cross, that is royal blood. He is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. And just like the just as the Jewish leaders could not change the writing on that placard, so their rejection of Jesus changes nothing about Jesus' true identity. Now, throughout the Bible, Jesus is proclaimed as king. Even before his birth, we are told of this coming king. And so, for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with King David. And he says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then, of course, you go to the New Testament. You go to Matthew chapter 2. And we read about these wise men from the east. They're following a star to Bethlehem, looking for this wonderful child that has come into the, to the world. And, and they are saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, he, we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And the rest of the New Testament affirms the kingship of Jesus all the way, back, all the way to the, uh, the last book of the Bible, to Revelation, which tells us about the return of the king who will come in power and glory at the end of the age, and he is riding on a, on a battle steed, and he is conquering the forces of evil, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that title, by the way, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that signifies that Jesus is not just king of the Jews, but king of the world. And Pilate himself unintentionally proclaims this in the placard placed on Jesus' cross. Yes, it says king of the Jews, but it's written in three languages. It's written in Aramaic, which would have been the dominant first language of the Jews, Latin, the language of the Roman army, 
and Greek, which was the, the trade tongue and the common tongue used throughout the entire Roman world. And so anybody literate, regardless of their race, where they were from, their background, would have been able to read Pilate's declaration. And so this trilingual proclamation can well serve as a symbol for the proclamation of the kingship of Jesus to the whole world. As one writer writes, Thus did Pilate tell it out among the heathen that the Lord is king. Now, what happens here really falls in line with the Apostle John's reoccurring theme of characters speaking better than they know. So you may remember Caiaphas. We talked about this a few weeks ago in chapter 11. Caiaphas unwittingly prophesies that it is better that one man die for the people than the nation perish. And here, Pilate now declares this same man to be the king. And so these two themes now come together in the cross. It's on the cross where the king sheds his blood and dies for his rebellious subjects to bring estranged humanity back into his family, transforming rebellious outlaws into adopted sons and daughters. And so, as we consider the cross, this is a very good time for you to consider, is Jesus your king? Have you bent the knee to him? Or are you a rebel on the run, trying to get away from him? Know that the king offers free and full pardon. If you want to move from being a a rebel who will be punished by the king to a child who has a place at the king's table, all you've got to do is receive Jesus. Because, John writes, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So receive this one who is treated as a criminal but proclaimed as a king, and and this one who also is treated with scorn. That word scorn, I looked it up, it's defined as feeling or expressing contempt or derision, uh, to regard someone as worthless or despicable. This is exactly what has been happening to Jesus. Jesus Christ The most beautiful person who has ever lived, the most valuable treasure in the universe, is completely debased and shamed and mocked. He's already been beaten. He's already been spat upon. He was already given in mockery this kingly robe and this rod for a scepter, which, by the way, they they beat him on the head with, smashing deeper into his scalp that crown of of dagger-like thorns. And Jesus in this moment, is fulfilling everything that Psalm chapter 22 points to. In Psalm 22, you have David the king. He's praying through his time of intense trial, and and he's at the same time prophetically speaking about what his royal descendant, the Lord Jesus, will experience when he writes that all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads He trusts in the Lord. Ha! Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. These enemies of David in Psalm 22 are making fun of David. They don't believe that he is the anointed one. They don't receive his kingship. They see see, uh, his helpless situation, and then they mock him. They make fun of him, much like we have uh, the enemies of Jesus mocking Jesus on the cross, as they do in Mark 15. Let the Christ, ha ha, the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. 
But the mockery gets worse. John tells us in um, verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. The king now has been disrobed. He is hanging there naked. Because the purpose of of crucifixion is not just execution, but humiliation. The purpose is to shame them. And so Jesus, as the one who comes to bear the curse of sin for us, in this moment is experiencing one of the first aspects of the curse of sin that we read about in the Bible. When Adam and Eve sinned, go back to Genesis 3, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but just think about it if you're familiar with the story. What, what did they experience in the wake of their sin? They had an awareness of their nakedness and they hid themselves because they were ashamed. Part of the curse of sin is the shame that we feel when we do something wrong. But while God makes for Adam and Eve clothes and he covers their shame, Jesus Christ doesn't receive that blessing. Instead, he receives the curse and all of its fullness. There is no one to cover him up in this moment. God the Father turns his face away, leaving Jesus hanging there naked and exposed and humiliated for everybody to see as he bears the shame of sin as if he himself were a sinner. What's more, he is regarded as less than human and even worthless because verse 23 shows these soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothing. This this piece of fabric is seen as more valuable and worthwhile than Jesus. And so again, the experience of David in Psalm 22 prophetically points forward to Jesus when David writes that, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Charles Spurgeon writes, How could the Lord of glory be brought to such lower than men. He felt himself to be comparable to a downtrodden worm, crushed and unnoticed and despised by those who trod upon him. How utterly did the Savior empty himself of all glory and become of no reputation for our sakes. A reproach of men, the sport of rabble, the scorn of rulers. Sin, Spurgeon says, is worthy of all reproach and contempt. And for this reason, Jesus, the sin bearer, was given up to be thus unworthily and shamefully entreated. But, just when we might be tempted to think that Jesus is a poor, helpless victim caught up in cruel circumstances that are out of control, the Apostle John reminds us, not so. Everything is going according to plan. None of this was surprising to God. As a matter of fact, all of it was ordained by God. And so you see in verse 24, it says, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And guess what scripture that's from? Psalm 22. Here we are again. And written hundreds of years before this event happened. From the soldier's perspective, they are following the orders of Pilate. 
But John peels back the curtain and he shows us what's really going on. The soldiers are actually unwittingly fulfilling God's word and yet the soldiers haven't a clue. It's amazing when you think about what these soldiers are doing. The, the most significant thing in the history of, world, of the world was happening right next to them. And Jesus seems totally irrelevant to them. They are totally indifferent to the cross. And that reaction to Jesus is not unlike the reaction of many people today. People hear about Jesus. They hear about the gospel. They hear about the earth-shattering ramifications of the cross, and they yawn. They look at their watches. They're thinking about lunch or about the next fun and entertaining thing that they're going to do. Why? Because we are told in 2 Corinthians 4, oh, that scripture's not there, I'll read it to you. We're, to, we're told in 2 Corinthians 4 that Satan, the god of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So whenever you talk about the cross to unbelievers, it is spiritual warfare, You are wrestling with unseen demonic powers and principalities who want your unbelieving friends and family members and and neighbors to stay blind. And so when you share the gospel and all you get is a shrug of the shoulders or a dismissal or or indifference, just know that this has been going on since those Roman soldiers gambled uh, for the clothes of a blood-splattered man who was right next to them hanging in unthinkable agony on a cross. The Roman guards see more value in a piece of fabric than in Jesus. And people today, people today see more value in their careers, their possessions, their sins, their plans, their dreams, their families, than they see in Jesus. And so Jesus was treated with scorn. And yet, he responds with love. Number two there, responds with love. Consider what the enemies of Jesus deserve in that moment. Uh, Those soldiers are gambling for Jesus' clothes. The crowd is mocking and making fun of him. Even the robbers crucified with him are hurling insults at Jesus. Uh, The the religious leaders are are laughing at him and and saying, if you're really the Christ, come on down and then we'll believe. What do they all deserve? What they deserve is for Christ to come down off that cross, but not so that they could believe, but so that Jesus could destroy them in judgment. But Jesus instead continues to hang there. He continues to put up with it. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He does not respond with vengeance or with self-centered self-pity, but love. He shows loving mercy to his enemies by not incinerating them on the spot. But we also know from another gospel that Jesus actually prays for their forgiveness. And we know that one of those crucified thieves who was making fun of Jesus has a change of heart, and he reaches out to Jesus for mercy. And if I were Jesus in that moment, I would have said, you've been up here making fun of me? You've been mocking me? Uh, No mercy for you serves you right. You're getting what's coming to you. Die and go to hell. But instead, Jesus responds to this man 
by assuring him that this day he would be with Jesus in heaven, in paradise, forgiven of his sins. Jesus is constantly thinking of others. He is constantly showing love. He is constantly showing kindness to his enemies, to a dying robber, to people in this room this morning whom he would save through remaining on the cross. And he shows love and kindness to his mother. Look at verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother. Jesus looks into the eyes of his mother. The same eyes he saw for the first time 30 some odd years ago in a manger in Bethlehem on that beautiful holy night. And we can only imagine what this must have been like for Mary as the soldiers gamble for his clothing, as she looks into the eyes of her son, her precious firstborn son, now hanging from a slab of wood like a piece of meat, bruised, battered, coughing up his own blood, swollen, barely recognizable. Yes, there are cosmic, earth-shaking events that are happening right now, but John in this moment reminds us that in the middle of all of this, we also have a mother whose heart is breaking and a son who knows that this is the moment when Simeon's prophecy comes true, who in Luke chapter 2 turns to Mary and tells her that a sword will pierce your soul. Jesus is saving the world. But in this moment, he is still his mother's son. He is still her firstborn. And with that comes special responsibility that any Jewish man who was the eldest son would have. And that is the responsibility for the care and provision of his mother. Mary is a widow by now with little or no personal income. No husband to look after her. And in the next hour or so, no eldest son either. And so we read in verse 26... When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, and by the way, I think the disciple whom Jesus loves is another other than John, the author of this book. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. So here is Jesus. Here's Jesus. He is enduring his greatest personal trial. Now, When we go through extreme difficulty and pain, we tend to become self-centered and self-focused, right? I know I do. Can't you see what I'm going through? I can't help you right now. I'm not really interested in your pain and what you are going through. Why don't you do something for me? Now, I'm like that because I'm a selfish sinner. Jesus isn't. He's the perfect man. Ready to obey the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. And in the midst of all of this horror, he is not concerned about himself. He is thinking about his mother. What is going to happen to Mary? I need to make sure Mary is provided for and safe after I'm gone. And normally in that culture, it was flesh and blood relatives, the next eldest son, that would be charged with the responsibility for looking after uh, his parents. But Jesus' flesh and blood brothers aren't at the cross. In fact, at this point, they're not even believers, And so Jesus turns to John the disciple, and in giving John this responsibility, he is in essence declaring John to be his brother, which hints at something that will be more further developed and revealed later on in the scriptures, that yes, Jesus is dying to save sinners, but more than that, he is also creating a new family. 
a family that is bound together not by blood, but by a common faith and a common adoption into the family of God. It's why earlier in his ministry, Jesus downplays flesh and blood relationships, and instead he says, whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So on top of everything else, the cross is also a sign that Jesus is lovingly dying, not just to save individual persons, but to save a people, to save a family, to create a people bound together with him and with one another. At the cross, Jesus is also seemingly defeated, seemingly defeated. Jesus' life is ebbing away. He has been beaten, he has been mocked, he has been scorned, ridiculed. He hangs disrobed and naked for all to see. It looks like the forces of evil have won. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Only after Jesus knows that he has accomplished his mission, does he then request a drink? The torments of hell are represented in the Bible by violent thirst. And let us never forget that worse than the physical agony on the cross was the literal hell that he was going through for us. Because Jesus on the cross took the sins of the world upon himself and as our substitute experienced the hell those sins deserve. Earlier this morning, I read to you Leviticus 16. That was probably a tough read for some of you. Try reading it out loud. Some of you probably have never read Leviticus 16. Some of you may have been freaked out by all that talk of sacrificed animals and and blood and rituals and all of that. But the point is that all of those things that God put in place for his people in ancient times serves as a reminder that the penalty for sin is death and exile. In fact, chapter 16, Leviticus 16, began with a reminder that Aaron the priest's own sons were killed by God because of their heinous sins against him. And the chapter continues with images of what we need to safely draw near to God and enjoy his presence forever. And what we need is a sin bearer. And so in Leviticus 16, you've got these animals dying in the place of the people. And you have this goat, this scapegoat who symbolically bore the sins of Israel upon himself when Aaron laid his hands on the goat's head. And that points to this, the transferal of the sins of Israel onto that animal. And then the goat was sent into exile outside of the camp, bearing away the sins of the people. Outside the camp, away from the people, away from the tabernacle where the presence of God is. But all of that was symbolic, A goat cannot truly atone for man's sins. An animal cannot be a substitute for man. So a better sacrifice, a better substitute is needed. And so here we see in John 19 the fulfillment of Leviticus 16 as Jesus bears the sins of the world upon himself. And as it says in verse 17, Jesus went out. He went outside the city 
outside Jerusalem, away from the temple, exiled from the camp as the sin bearer, and ultimately experiences exile from God himself. That's what hell is, exile from the enjoyment of God's presence while enduring the full weight of God's wrath. This is what Jesus endures on the cross. This is what Jesus is experiencing uh, when in that moment, as we are told in the Gospel of Matthew, he cries out, again quoting Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He endures the agonizing treatment that comes from separation from God so you don't have to. And in this moment, the enemies of Jesus are getting exactly what they had hoped for. The scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they want Jesus to be seen as cursed and forsaken by God so that no one will follow him. It seems like they have won. At the cross, Jesus is seemingly defeated, but totally victorious. Verse 30. Jesus had received the sour wine. He said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Before he dies, Jesus utters three last words. Actually, in the Greek language, it's just one word. After all of this, there was just one more thing that Jesus had to say. Finished. The other gospels, the reason I'm like yelling that is the other gospels tell us that he said that with a loud voice. All right? That's important to know. It wasn't that at the end of it all, he goes out with a weak, tired, sad, pathetic whimper. It is finished. And he certainly doesn't say, I am finished. Boy, that would be bad. Instead, at the end of it all, Jesus straightens himself up one final time, opening up that chest cavity, taking a deep breath of oxygen, and he gives a shout of triumph. It's the victory cry of a conquering warrior who has just gone toe-to-toe with a deadly enemy, and he has crushed his skull, and he has vanquished him, and he cries out, Tetelestai, which means finished, accomplished, completed. All that I went to the cross to achieve, I have done. He has perfectly revealed God the Father to us. All of those Old Testament types and shadows, all of those those things now give way to the reality of Jesus and his finished work. And as Jesus shouts the war cry, Genesis 3.15, one of my favorite verses, is being fulfilled where God said to the serpent, said to the devil, you will bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman, but he will crush your head. I love it. As Jesus declared victory in that final shout, all of those Old Testament animal sacrifices suddenly become obsolete as they're now superseded by Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God. And since it was all finished and Jesus had won, now Jesus willfully gives up his life. Now he does it. Text says, he gave up his spirit. You see, Jesus is in control. He's been in control the whole time. (laughs) He's been in in charge the whole time. 
Don't you know this? He said this a few chapters ago. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down in my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Pilate can't kill Jesus. The Roman soldiers can't kill Jesus. The brutal scourging that Jesus received, that beating that's been known to kill men before crucifixion, that can't kill Jesus. Jesus will not die until he is good and ready. And his love for you kept him going. His passionate commitment to save you from eternal exile in hell and to earn you a home in heaven kept him alive and hanging on the cross. For the joy that was set before him, Scripture says he did this. And he would not die until he had finished the work of paying for your sins on the cross. And now that it is finished, it is finished. That means if you trust in Jesus, all of your sins are forgiven. No more living in guilt and shame because he took the guilt and the shame for you. No more living in fear of judgment because he took that for you. No more trying to do good works to earn favor with God. You already have favor with God through Christ. It really is finished. Some of you are battling guilt this morning over things you've done in your life. You need to believe this morning that it is finished. Jesus has completed the work. And if you are trusting in him, your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. But Demer, you say, you don't, you don't know what I've, I've done. You don't know what I've done. No, I don't know what you have done. But one thing I do know, it is finished. But Demer, you don't know how many times I keep falling into the same stupid sin over and over again. Nope, I don't know that either. But I do know this, it is finished. But Deemer, I, I, but Deemer, nothing. Jesus said that it's finished. That's the final word, not your word. Even your struggle to believe this and the times of doubt that you have, and we all struggle with it, those things are nailed to the cross. That's the difference between the cross and the electric chair. That's why we're not morbid for, for having behind me this symbol of the cross. Because of Jesus, what was once known and dreaded as an instrument of death has been turned around, has been turned on its head and transformed. It's become a beacon of hope and a source of life for all the nations. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus... It is time for you to apply the finished work of Jesus to your own life. Because if you try to deal with your sins on your own terms, it will never be finished. You will spend forever in hell paying off your debts. And you don't want that. Listen, Jesus didn't go through hell for nothing. He went through hell for sinners. So it's time for you to do what you've been putting off doing for a very long time. And it's time for you to give your life to Jesus and trust his work on the cross because in Jesus it is finished.